Good evening and welcome. We are going to read from Swan's Way in French and in English. Et tout d'un coup, le souvenir m'est apparu. Ce goût, c'était celui du petit morceau de madeleine que le dimanche matin combrait, parce que ce jour-là je ne sortais pas avant l'heure de la messe, quand j'allais lui dire bonjour dans sa chambre. Ma tante Léonie m'offrait, après l'avoir trempé dans son infusion de thé ou de tilleul. Et dès que j'eus reconnu le goût du morceau de madeleine trempé dans le tilleul que me donnait ma tante, aussitôt, la vieille maison grise sur la rue où était sa chambre, vint comme un décor de théâtre, s'appliquait au petit pavillon du jardin. Et avec la maison, la ville, depuis le matin jusqu'au soir et par tous les temps. La place où on m'envoyait avant déjeuner, les rues où j'allais faire des courses, les chemins qu'on prenait si le temps était beau. Et comme dans ce jeu où les Japonais s'amusent à tremper dans un bol de porcelaine rempli d'eau, de petits morceaux de papier jusque-là indistincts, qui à peine y sont-ils plongés, s'étirent, se contournent, se colorent, se différencient, deviennent des fleurs, des maisons, des personnages consistants et reconnaissables, de même maintenant, toutes les fleurs de notre jardin et celles du parc de M. Swann, et les nymphéas de la Vivonne, et les bonnes gens du village, et leurs petits logis, et l'église, et tout combrait ses environs, tout ce qui prend forme et solidité, est sorti, ville et jardin, de ma tasse de thé. And suddenly the memory returns. The taste was that of the little crumb of Madeleine, which on Sunday mornings at Combray, when I went to say good day to her in her bedroom, my Aunt Leone used to give me, dipping it first in her own cup of real tea or lime flower tea. And once I had recognized the taste of the crumb of Madeleine soaked in her decoction of lime flowers, immediately the old gray house upon the street where her room was rose up like the scenery of the theater to attach itself to a little pavilion opening onto a garden. And with the house, the town, from morning to night and in all weathers, and the square where I sent was sent before luncheon, the streets along which I used to run errands, the country roads which we took when it was fine. And just as the Japanese amuse themselves by filling a porcelain bowl with water and steeping it in little crumbs of paper, which the moment they become wet, stretch themselves and bend, take on colors and distinctive shapes, become flowers or houses or people, permanent and recognizable, so that in a moment, all the flowers in our garden and in Mr. Swan's park and the water lilies on the vivant and the good folk of the village and their little dwellings and the parish church and the whole of Combray and of its surroundings 
taking their proper shapes and growing solid, sprang into being town and gardens alike from my cup of tea. I am not Swan, who should have been announced by the little bell. Uh, without official approval, I should like to dedicate the proceedings tonight to the little reading groups and secret Proust readers who are here tonight and who have produced something called a house, a full house for Marcel Proust. And we will honor Proust most, I believe, if we stick for just a few minutes to what I call scripture. Therefore, here beginneth the first verse of the first chapter of the book called In Search of Lost Time. First in French, very brief. Longtemps. Je me suis couché de bonne heure. Parfois, à peine ma bougie éteinte, mes yeux se fermaient si vite que je n'avais pas le temps de me dire « Je m'endors ». Et la pensée qu'il était temps de chercher le sommeil m'éveillait. And now a translation of the same opening passage uh, composed for the occasion. And those of you who have tried to translate the first sentence will know that it is impossible. Therefore, it has to be translated. Early to bed with a book, I have tried that for years. Many times, I would blow out my candle and drop off to sleep so fast that I didn't register what was happening. And half an hour later, the thought that it was time for me to go to sleep would wake me up again. During that brief sleep, I had entered into the life of the book I was reading, had entered it so utterly that I became its subject, a quartet, a church, the rivalry between Francis I and Charles V, 
This belief in a new identity didn't trouble me, but like a film over my eyes, it prevented me from noticing that my candle had blown out. Tenderly, I pressed my cheek into the plump pillow, so cool and soft that it seemed to offer me the cheeks of childhood itself. At this point, Proust does go on to describe the magical childhood of the young Marcel. But something not often noticed happens first. There comes the great fall. By about page three, we are carried away into a swift and deep descent, a descent back to childhood, a descent back to Adam and Eve, a descent back to the cavemen, and finally, back to the condition that Proust calls the abyss of non-being. This distinct fall at the beginning links Proust's book to Genesis, to Dante, with the descent into hell at the beginning of the Divine Comedy, and to Alice in Wonderland, beginning with the rabbit hole. But Proust's descent, or his narrator's fall, is much more dire and dreadful than that of these other books. If you grasp the true significance of that Im immense fall at the beginning, then you will also understand why it took Proust 3,000 pages to climb back up out of that hole, to find the present again, to find his own skin, and finally, to find that uh, puzzling set of, of conventions that we call civilization. Along the way, Proust offers us a million little details, delicious items, small things, like, I shall only mention it, the asparagus. Like the street cries, which the narrator listens to in his bed. And if you've read far enough, like the two pimples which appear on Albertine's forehead, signifying what we never quite learn. But all these millions of little things add up, I believe, to one big thing. In Search of Lost Time offers us a record of how it feels, of how it feels in our very system to be alive, to be alive both as a generic human being and to be alive as our own sorry yearning selves. Proust, many of us feel, is the most sensuous novelist who ever lived and wrote for us, and we give thanks. Marcel Proust lived from 1871 to 1922, an era that he characterized as the age of speed. 
These exciting, momentous years encompass the fin de siècle, Belle Époque, and World War I. By the time Proust was 40, the gaslit world of his youth had been transformed by electric lighting, the telephone, the phonograph, the automobile, the airplane, and motion pictures. When he began writing his novel, Paris streets bustled with an astonishing variety of pedestrians, ambulatory vendors, drivers and their horses, and a number of the new self-propelling vehicles called automobiles. He could see the past and future on parade as horse-drawn carriages made way for cars. Part of the fascination of reading In Search of Lost Time derives from its vivid depiction of the major social, political, and technological forces that changed daily life and the way people perceived time and space. In September 1905, when Proust was 34, his mother died. His intense grief lasted until 1907, when a summer vacation brought about a dramatic change in him. Depressed and ill, he had in recent months gotten out of bed only once a week without dressing. After arriving at the seaside resort, the pure air, joined with a deadly dose of caffeine, 17 cups, allowed him to hire the driver, Alfred Augustinelli, and go out every day in a closed car. Riding across the Normandy countryside with Augustinelli in his red taxi was, Proust said, like being shot out of a cannon. As the taxi sped along the road towards Caen, uh, famous for its medieval churches, Proust watched the distant spires appear and disappear against the horizon in constantly shifting perspectives. And he marveled at the phenomenon of parallax and relativity so keenly felt in the automobile. Stillness and mobility relate to art and desire in Proust's world. Girls in motion, most often seen on bicycles, arouse desire in the narrator. Albertine, chief among the girls whom Proust calls creatures of flight, always exhibits an enthusiasm for sports and bicycles, automobiles, and airplanes. Fast by nature, Albertine becomes, through the narrator's obsessive jealousy, a truly volatile figure. And here's a quote. Even when you hold them in your hands, such persons are fugitives. To understand the emotions they arouse and which others, even better looking, do not, we must realize that they are not immobile, but in motion, and add to their person a sign corresponding to that which in physics denotes speed. Proust's elaboration of the theme of time shows that he is not only aware of the constantly shifting nature of things, but is haunted by it. Change and reaction to change set the tone of the period. The Great War, in which common soldiers became the heroes, and also the first in which airplanes were used to launch bombs, accelerated the process of transformation. After the war, the Guermantes Salon, once the epitome of aristocratic elegance and snobbery, is described as a broken down machine no longer functioning properly and unable to maintain its fierce exclusivity. This is but another turn of the Proustian kaleidoscope. Even the ultra chic Faubourg Saint-Germain must yield to the forces of time, as the narrator observes. Thus it is that the pattern of the things of this world changes, that centers of empire, assessments of wealth, letters patent of social prestige, 
all that seemed to be forever fixed is constantly being refashioned so that the eyes of a man, of a man who has lived can contemplate the most total transformation exactly where change would have seemed to him to be most impossible." End of quote. Late in life, the narrator returns to the Bad Boulogne, hoping to find living memories of his youth. Quote, smitten by a desire to see again what I had once loved, as ardent as the desire that had driven me many years before along the same paths, I wished to see anew before my eyes the moment when Madame Swann's enormous coachman endeavored to curb the ardor of those horses, frenzied and light as wasp on the wing as they thundered over the ground. Alas, there was nothing now but motor cars driven each by a mustached mechanic. How horrible, I exclaimed to myself. Can anyone find these motor cars as elegant as the old carriage and pair? The places we have known, he concludes, do not belong only to the world of space on which we map them for our own convenience. None of them was ever more than a thin slice held between the contiguous impressions that composed our life at that time. The memory of a particular image is but regret for a particular moment, and houses, roads, avenues are as fugitive, alas, as the years." End of quote. The new heroes of the Age of Speed the cyclist, the chauffeur, and the aviator all appear in Proust's novel. Albertine, the cyclist, is a mysterious, erotic creature, while the aviator symbolizes the artist. At the beginning of the novel's climactic scene, the narrator, at last looking inward for the keys to his past, suddenly feels himself rising in flight, like an airman who hitherto has progressed laboriously along the ground, abruptly taking off I soared slowly towards the silent heights of memory." End of quote. One of the most modern aspects of In Search of Lost Time is that it is an open-ended novel built on the model of the universe. In 1931, Edmund Wilson declared this book the literary equivalent of Einstein's theory. I quote, Proust has recreated the world of the novel from the point of view of relativity. He has supplied for the first time in literature an equivalent on the full scale for the new theory of physics." End of quote. In doing so, Proust creates new ways of looking at the world, making In Search of Lost Time one of the most complex and stimulating optics that we have for viewing our own lives. Through the dynamic use of shifting perspectives as the narrator journeys towards his goal, Proust offers the reader a kaleidoscopic view of a world in motion. Few writers have given us so many enthralling ways of looking at the world and our own experience. By making us aware of the unplumbed layers within ourselves, Proust expands and celebrates the range and depth of our perception. Thank you. The apartment at 102 Boulevard Haussmann, in which Proust wrote most of In Search of Lost Time, is now owned by a bank. The bedroom in which Proust slept, rested, ate, received visitors, and wrote is used by the bank for meetings with clients. 
and it is relatively bare of reminders of Proust. There is a portrait of him on the wall and some of his books in a bookcase. The only other furniture is a table and four chairs and a sideboard. What is still there that Proust looked upon daily is the marble fireplace, the doors, the two tall windows, and the wood floor with its herringbone pattern. Sparsely furnished like this, it does not seem very large, though Proust described it as vast. Sometimes, after he had been awake a few hours, though still in bed, Proust would decide on impulse to go out and see a friend. At 10 or 11 at night in the dark bedroom, the only light comes from the lamp by his bed and the fire in the fireplace if it's winter. The dark room is crowded with furniture, including two large bookcases, a wardrobe, a grand piano, an armchair for visitors, and various little tables. Proust leaves his bed, crosses the short hallway, and gets dressed. His suit is made to measure, and his patent leather boots were bought at the old England shop. He does not tend to wear out his shoes. He is transported by taxi and walks on carpet and parquet floors. He arrives at his friend's house, waking him up, and begins talking. His friend, perhaps exaggerating, later reports that Proust speaks in one long sentence that does not, does not come to an end until the middle of the night. This sentence is full of asides, parenthetical remarks, parentheses, dashes, illuminations, reconsiderations, revisions, addenda, corrections, augmentations, digressions, qualifications, erasures, deletions, and marginal notes. <laughs> the sentence, in other words, attempts to be exhaustive, to capture every nuance of a piece of reality and yet to be correct, to reflect Proust's entire thought. To be exhaustive and correct is, of course, an infinite task. More can always be inserted, more event and more nuance, more commentary on the event and more nuance within the commentary. Many contemporaries of Proust insisted that he wrote the way he spoke, although when Swan's Way appeared in print, they were startled by what they saw as the severity of the page. Where were the pauses, the inflections? There were not enough empty spaces, not enough punctuation marks. I can't read it, said one old father to his son. You read it aloud to me. The sentences did not seem as long when they were spoken as when they were read on the page. The voice punctuated. On the page, the punctuation is eccentric. Certain sentences are remarkable for their absence of commas, and others for having suddenly so many more commas than you would expect. The punctuation obeys some other law. Is this style conversational or not? Well, it seems to want to give the illusion of the conversational. Sentences begin with, and so, but, in fact, actually, and yet, of course, yes, no, wasn't it true, really. But what a strange conversation, long and one-sided, composed in darkness and silence and sentences so elaborately constructed with towering architectures of subordinate phrases that you have to stop and think and then go back over them just to figure them out. Proust felt that a long sentence contained a whole complex thought. The shape of the sentence was the shape of the thought, and every word was necessary to the thought. 
When he used a deliberate effect like alliteration, it was there not as an empty flourish, but to tie two similar elements or contrasting elements together in one's mind. He despised empty flourishes. He categorically rejected sentences that were artificially amplified, that were overly abstract or that groped, arriving at a sentence by a succession of approximations. Great length was not desirable in itself. As he proceeded from draft to draft, he not only added material but also condensed. I prefer concentration, he said, even in length. I really have to weave these long silks as I spin them, he said. If I shortened my sentences, it would make little pieces of sentences, not sentences. Please break up these long sentences, is the plaintive request that a translator of Proust hears at least once. No, the book is really more about thought than plot. And in any case, in Swan's way, at least, there is a nice balance. 80% of the sentences are not excessively long. The sentences must be kept intact, long and short, and they must retain as many elements of their complexity as possible, the parallel structures, the pairs of phrases, the triplets, the alliteration and assonance, the meter, but above all, the intricate architecture of syntax by which Proust inserts his parenthetical remarks and digressions, delaying as long as possible the outcome of the sentence, so this means, in the end, trying to preserve not only the ease of a sentence when it is easy, but also the difficulty of a sentence when it is difficult. And it means asking oneself the same question with each sentence, though with a different problem in each. If I can't reproduce, for example, the hexameter, which Proust has so beautifully embedded in this phrase, by just how much will I have changed his thought? When I was in college, it was my good fortune to be a student of John Hawkes. Momentously for me, he once put a blessing on a paragraph of mine. He called it Proustian. He did this to shelter it from the criticisms of my fellow students, who were aflame then with a stern undergraduate passion for truth-telling, for, for tearing away veils and dispelling illusions. I was as impressed by this project as anyone, and I made certain poor attempts at it, which the formidable Mr. Hawkes discouraged by invoking this great name to, to approve one straying memory of my primordial Idaho. I had read no Proust at the time. I was much struck by the freedom from, from constraint and expectation I suddenly enjoyed. Thereafter, I could complicate my sentences and elaborate my metaphors and explore my memory without prosecutorial intent and still be respected by my peers. I learned a true thing then, that no one is ever in advance of Proust. The most radical aesthetic will always accept him as an honored contemporary and collaborator. So I associated Proust with the blessing and freeing of language and memory and of the testimony of the individual spirit even before I discovered by reading him that he should indeed be associated with just these things. 
Given the vagaries of historical reputation, it is startling to find anyone whose influence is what it ought to be. Why, why this is so singularly true of Proust? It is as if the great purity of Proust's motive in writing, I take this to be a profoundly courteous desire to give us back to ourselves, has made the whole phenomenon of his work proof against adulteration. He restores us to our purest innocence as readers. His young narrator, Marcel, tells us how it was and is to pass a summer morning engrossed in a book. The dim coolness of my room was to the broad daylight of the street what the shadow is to the sunbeam, that is to say, equally luminous, and presented to my imagination the entire panorama of summer, which my senses, if I had been out walking, could have <clears throat> tasted and enjoyed only piecemeal. And so it was quite in harmony with my state of repose, which, thanks to the enlivening adventures related in my books, sustained like a hand reposing motionless in a stream of running water the shock and animation of a torrent of activity. For the reader of Proust, the animation and the shock come simultaneously with the recognition of the perfect aptness of his description and also of the brilliance of an experience we are delighted to recognize as our own. Reminded what it is to read, those of us who write are reminded why we write. He tells us that the very limitations of the art, its very departures from strict truth, have an intrinsic moral that is compassionate value. He says, a real person, profoundly as we may sympathize with him, is in a great measure perceptible only through our senses. That is to say, remains opaque, presents a dead weight which our sensibilities have not the strength to lift. If some misfortune comes to him, it is only in one small section of the complete idea we have of him that we are capable of feeling any emotion. Indeed, it is only in one small section of the complete idea he has of himself that he is capable of feeling any emotion either. The novelist's happy discovery was to think of substituting for those opaque sections, impenetrable to the, to the human soul, their equivalent in immaterial sections, things that is which one's soul can assimilate. Proust asserts and proves the primacy of aesthetics. The mysteries of apprehension and comprehension, destiny and will are all negotiated by him in aesthetic terms. By this means, he restores us to a kind of experiential innocence, as if we could be recalled to a time when language and memory, when our mind and our senses astonished us, as indeed they should never cease to do. His metaphor for this is the memory of the impassioned perceptions of childhood, but the state he describes as an atemporal one, in which the senses are awakened as they are only sometimes by art or when we are dreaming. And as they do in dreams, frustration, anxiety, the fear of loss or shame, give the beauty of things and people and the weather of our minds an ineluctable, too present strangeness, a beauty too pure to be merely beautiful. Marcel, old and nostalgic, 
visits the autumnal Bois de Bologna and sees there, farther off, at a place where the trees were still all green, one alone, small, stunted, lopped, but stubborn in its resistance, tossing in the breeze an ugly mane of red. Re reading Proust, we are always recalled to a sense of the elegance of our most ordinary perceptions and how richly they are changed by habit, by accidental associations, by regret and yearning, by misapprehension and disenchantment, and by time. I will not say by love, since love, if it exists, is merely the great sum of all these things. Just so does truth, if it exists, impartially include in its great sum and among its marvels the shabbiest and the most opulent of veils and illusions. Was it in the summer? It probably was, when you thought you had enough time on your hands to fill them with a book, when an unappointed space had appeared in your life, the summer when you decided to read Proust. Perhaps the impossible purpose appeared to you in late afternoon at an hour customarily assigned to tea and to fingering volumes by Henry James you would have had to have been hear the toll of those terrible tenses you would have had to have been young or recently retired <laughs> ambitious or convalescent <laughs> feeling the need sensing the opportunity to improve yourself <laughs> when andre gide first looked into swan's way it must have seemed a stack of sheets like any other, so his mind would not have been filled with the kind of foreboding that faces the climber of a mountain while still in the foothills, looking up at his goal, a blanched peak whose slopes are already dotted with many a failed ambition. <laughs> Gide's encounter with the name Proust would not be like any of ours. He would remember the frivolous social snob, while we would be ready to regard that same person as bearing a title, perhaps like others so often in the literary news, Joyce and Kafka and Mann, so that if we didn't positively love what of Proust we finally read, we would never let on, for some small sins are more shameful to the soul than many a public crime. Yet that's the way we should have got into it, unaware when it first came out, into Swan's way. Because during every decade after, in addition to the rambling work itself, books of commentary and criticism would begin to surround it like a barricade, adding to one's trepidations. Not to mention idle conversations about the great work's length, its difficulties, and laughable place in summertime's hammock attitudes that built its popular reputation. 
Am I ready? Am I worthy? Couldn't I settle for Colette or even Seguin, each equally French? And when we begin Henry Fielding's Tom Jones, how much of the story does the author expect us to keep in mind as we read along? He expects us, I think, to remember about as much of Tom Jones's history as Tom Jones does. For instance, to remember that Tom broke his leg, but not to remember all that was said by the visitors who appeared at his bedside. The text is meant to dwindle away as past times do. And if some element is supposed to be retained for future use, we can be confident that Fielding will prompt us. How otherwise it is with Joyce uh, to name the most guilty. Uh, he would have us recollect Bloom's orange flower water hundreds of pages after its first appearance, while recognizing that the soap with which it is associated is even more important. The text is not a boat's wake, meant to subside behind us. Instead, it rises up like a tidal wave and pursues us as we read, ready to flood each and every succeeding page with previous meanings, and altering all that has gone before the way Henry James's predicates surprise and abash their subjects with an ultimate turn of phrase. How can past time be found if the text in which its discovery is meant to be made is itself as forgetful as Smollett or Fielding or Scott or Trollope? Nor must a text that is the result of dauntless revisions be read as the skater skates at the sharp edge of blade and the blunt of ice. Proust's novel remembers more fully than any memory might. Moreover, it remembers in words redolent with sensation and rich with reflection. What has taken place in this novel, what has been rendered into such a verbal vision, it now remains for us to seek and realize and serve. That M, whose world I read of there, also stands for me. So much less was once required. When the world is remembered in writing, it alters almost utterly in its density, in its absence of detail. It, my body, M says about waking, subsiding, waking up again, my body would recall from each room in succession what the bed was like, where the doors were, how daylight came in at the windows, whether there was a passage outside, what I had had in my mind when I went to sleep and had found there when I woke." Unquote. And the master makes certain that the reader has M's sense of fullness as if nothing has been or will be overlooked. Quote, and my body brought back before my eyes the glimmering flame of the nightlight in its bowl of bohemian glass, shaped like an urn and hung by chains from the ceiling." Unquote. Yet it is only the suggestion of completeness that is given, not its reality. For those chains are darkening their brass with dust. The blue in the flame is rhythmically retreating before the orange, 
and in the chimney piece of Siena marble that M mentions, there is a noticeable nick that I just put there. In short, no description possesses as much this or that as a camera might catch in the flicker of a finger. Not to omit the states of mind that furnish a room from time to time with longing, appreciation, and panic. Things and creatures in the real world buzz and blossom by the billions, and we know to beware of their brevity, because decay and death are as continuous as being born or burgeoning. Reading Proust, we are constantly, sadly, guiltily reminded of the paucity of our own recollections, that life went on around us and we missed it. We might have pondered our place, but we did not. We might have discerned connections, for they were there in Jamesian numbers, yet we failed to follow. We might have indulged in obsession, but we were too distracted by the trivial. We might have retained a fond touch, a glimmer of insight, a bit of wit. We might have. We might have. Well, if the distance between what happens and what we have understood about it is dismaying, what of the difference our memory makes on the third day thence, the fifth week after the seventh year just passed? An habitual victim of his body, Proust knew how great the chasm was between the mind and body. Outside Monsieur Test's and Paul Valéry's theater of the head, there was a reality indifferent to the plays put on by consciousness. We knew that world in part. It supplied our senses. It gave us occasion for concern, for delight, for desire. It gave us our place, Baalbek, Paris, Cambrai. Yet of us, that world of matter and motion remained utterly unaware. Our lungs knew their air but not our aspirations. Speaking of his grandmother's failing health, M says, quote, it is in moments of illness that we are compelled to recognize that we live not alone, but chained to a creature of a different kingdom, whole worlds apart, who has no knowledge of us and by whom it is impossible to make ourselves understood, our body, unquote. To remember, to imagine, to dream all specialties of this house is to depart the body for a land through which the body cannot travel. To read is to leave the library. Yet it is the body, as it stirs restlessly through the opening pages, that remembers M's rooms. It is the body that prompts him. It nudges him without knowing he is there. Its posture reminds him. His stiffened side reminds him but his muscles do not feel the cramp they bear. So when we assume the position, we habitually assume when we read, we ready our departure. Our body must know, like a pet, from the smell of our luggage, that we are off. And our eyes will see no more floor or wall or ceiling, because we, as the true Proustian performer always does, will adopt another body, that of the type-furrowed field, the conceptual page, and become its syllabic music. The real world is full of pointless purpose, 
inattentiveness, confusion, pain, and perplexity, as well as the hazards of its satisfactions. Yet in Proust's pages, it is perceived, it is felt, it is contemplated in a manner so utterly satisfying that those pains in their depiction become pleasures. Confusions are given an order only we are permitted to understand. Defeats are now worth every word of their account. Failures, victories, if only in their voicing. And that is why to live for a while as we ought in a fully realized world, though its understanding will be forever incomplete and quite beyond us, that is why we read Proust. So to conclude this portion of the program, we will now read excerpts from Swan's Way and from the Proust screenplay by Harold Pinter. They present a very telescoped account of Swan's affair with Odette and describe how a piece of music, a certain sonata for piano and violin by the fictional composer Ventoya, provides an increasingly profound artistic counterpoint to the experiences of life and love that Swan is having. I'm John Shea. I will read the narrator's part from the novel and will take the role of Swan and the excerpts from the screenplay. Odette is read by Louise Sorel, Madame Verderin by Zoe Caldwell, who will also read the stage directions. And standing in for, thank you, Zoe, and standing in for Ventoya's sonata are excerpts from the Foray sonata, number one in A major, performed by Nelson Paget on piano and Na Yan Ho on violin.
from Swansway. The year before, at an evening party, Swan had heard a piece of music played on the piano and violin. At first, he'd appreciated only, only the material quality of the sounds which those instruments secreted. And it had been a source of keen pleasure when, below the delicate line of the violin part, he had suddenly become aware of the mass of the piano part beginning to emerge in a sort of liquid rippling of sound like the deep blue tumult of the sea, silvered and charmed into a minor key by the moonlight. But then, at a certain moment, without being able to give name to what was pleasing him, suddenly enraptured, he tried to grasp the phrase or harmony that had just been played and that had opened and expanded his soul as the fragrance of certain roses wafted upon the moist air of evening has the power of dilating one's nostrils. He had distinguished quite clearly a phrase which emerged for a few moments above the waves of sound. It had suggested to him a world of inexpressible delights, and he had been filled with a love for it, as with a strange and new desire. With a slow and rhythmical movement, it led him first this way, then that, toward a state of happiness that was noble, unintelligible, and yet precise. And then suddenly it changed direction, and in a fresh movement, more rapid, fragile, melancholy, incessant, sweet, it bore him off with it toward new vistas, and then it vanished. He hoped with a passionate longing that he might find it again a third time and reappear. It did, though bringing indeed a pleasure less profound. But when he returned home, he felt the need of it. He was like a man into whose life a woman he has seen for a moment passing by has brought the image of a new beauty which deepens his own sensibility, although he does not even know her name or whether he will even see her again. Indeed, this passion for a phrase of music seemed to open up before Swan the possibility of a sort of rejuvenation. He had so long deceased to direct his life toward any ideal goal, confining himself to the pursuit of ephemeral satisfactions, that he had become to believe that he would remain in that condition for the rest of his days. He had grown into the habit of taking refuge in trivial considerations, which enabled him to disregard the matters of fundamental importance. But now, Swan was conscious once again of the desire and almost the strength to consecrate his life. That night at Madame Verderin's, scarcely had the young pianist begun to play than suddenly, after a high note sustained through two whole bars, Swan sensed its approach and recognized, secret, murmuring, detached, the airy and perfumed phrase that he had loved. Now at last, he could ask the name of this fair unknown and was told that it was the Andante of Venturius Sonata for piano and violin and he held it safe. He could have it again to himself at home as often as he wished, could study its language and acquire its secret. And so, when the, piano, when the pianist had finished, Swan crossed the room and thanked him with a vivacity which delighted Madame Verderin. And Swan began to tell Odette how he had fallen in love with that little phrase when their hostess, who was some way off, called out, well, it looks to me as though someone was saying nice things to you, Odette. And she replied, yes, very nice. And he found her simply delightful. 
And then he asked for information about this Wunterjach. What else had he done? At what period in his life had he composed this sonata? And what meaning the little phrase could have had for him? That was what Swan wanted to know the most. No, 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 not my sonata. I shall have to stay in bed for a week. Oh, well, I'll have to surrender to it, I suppose, make myself ill for the sake of art. Mrs. Swan, you're not comfortable. Sit by Mademoiselle de Crecy on the sofa. You can make room for him or dead, can't you, you exquisite little thing? Oh, yes, Madame Dertoufin. I think so. Interior. Odette's house in Rue La Perouse, Paris, to us, that's our anthem. Now, don't you think it's beautiful? Play it, play it. Oh, it's very nice. No, listen, all right. There's a painting by Botticelli, Jethro's daughter. It's you. No, it is you. You are sweet. Interior, Odette's house, early evening, 1880. <laughs> I understand you need some money. Oh, oh, darling! <laughs> Exterior. Odette's house, night. A carriage draws up, Swan gets out. It's late. I know. I'm sorry. You weren't coming tonight. What happened to your baby? Well, I left early. I, I, I had to see you. But I'm asleep. I have a terrible headache. I was asleep. Well, well let me come in. I'll, I'll soothe no. you. I'll soothe you. You say I'll... you're not coming. I don't feel well. I go to bed and then you arrive at the middle of the night. No, it's only 11 o'clock. Let me... It's the middle of the night for me. Swan's house, Paris, night. Coachman, go back to Rue La Parouse, s'il vous plaît. Interior, Odette's bedroom. All right, Odette, I must ask you a few questions. I'm sure. All right. Since you have known me, have you known other men? Oh, I knew it was that kind of question. I could tell from your face. No, I have not. 
time when I want out the menu, silly, I have you. Fine. <laughs> right. What about other women? Women? Women. Yes. You remember once how Madame Verdurin said to you. I know how to melt you all right. You are not made of marble. You asked me about that long ago. I know. I told you it was a joke. Have a joke, you, that's all. All right. Have you ever with her? I have told you no. You know quite well. Besides, she's not like that. Well, don't say you know quite well. Say I have never done anything of that sort with Madame Verdurin or any other woman. I have never done anything of that sort with Madame Verdurin or any other woman. Ah. All right, can you swear to me? Can you swear to me on that ah. cross? Ah. You make me sick. What is wrong with you today? All right, tell me, on the cross, yes or no, whether or not you have ever done those things. How do I know? <laughs> I don't even know what you mean. What things? Perhaps I have years ago when I didn't know what I was doing. Perhaps two or three times, I don't know. Well, but wait, how, how many times exactly? Oh, for God's sake. Anyway, it's all so long ago, I've never given it a thought. Anyone would think you were trying to put ideas into my head just to get me to do it. Yeah. No, it's a simple question, and you must remember. You must remember with whom? My love, and how many times? I don't know. Who, all right, the last time. Who was the, who was the last, the last one you were with? I don't know. I think in the war, on the island, one evening, you were dining with those Germains. At the next table was a woman I hadn't seen for ages. She said to me, come round the rock behind there and look at the moonlight on the water. At first I just yawned and said, no, I'm too tired. But she swore there'd never been any moonlight to touch it. I've heard that tale before, I said to her. I knew quite well what she was after. Exterior. Swans Park and House at Tansonville, dead. No one in sight. But we hear... Perhaps two or three times. Perhaps two or three times. I knew quite well what she was after. Perhaps two or three times. I knew quite well what she was after. And from that evening onward, Swan understood that the feeling which Odette had once had for him would never revive, that his hopes of happiness would not be realized now. But meanwhile, the concert had begun again, and he saw that he could not now go before the end of the next number. He suffered greatly from being shut up among all these people whose stupidity and absurdity struck him all the more painfully, being ignorant of his love. They made it appear to him in the aspect of a subjective state which existed for himself alone, whose reality there was nothing external to confirm. He suffered above all from his having to prolong his exile in this place to which Odette would never come, in which no one and nothing 
was aware of her existence, from which she was entirely absent. But suddenly, it was as though she had entered. And this apparition was so agonizingly painful that his hand clutched at his heart. The violin had risen to a series of high notes on which it rested as though awaiting something, holding on in a desperate effort to last out until its arrival, to welcome it before itself expiring. And before Swan had time to understand what was happening and to say to himself, it's the little phrase from Ventoya's Sonata, I mustn't listen. His memories of all the days when Odette had been in love with him, awakened from their slumber, had taken wing and, and risen to sing maddeningly in his ears without pity for his present desolation, the forgotten strains of his happiness. He could see it all, the snowy curled petals of the chrysanthemum, which he had tossed after him into his carriage, which he had pressed to his lips, the address Maison Dorée, embossed on the notepaper on which he had read, my hand trembles so as I write this to you. The contraction of her eyebrow when she said pleadingly, you don't have to, you won't leave it too long before getting in touch with me, will you? He could smell the heated iron of the barber whom used to singe his hair. He could feel the showers which fell so often that spring, the ice-cold homeward drive in his Victoria by moonlight. At that time, he had been studying a sensual curiosity in discovering the pleasures of those who live for love alone. He had supposed that he could stop there, that he would not be obliged to learn their sorrows as well. But now Swan could distinguish, standing motionless before a scene of remembered happiness, a wretched figure who filled him with such pity that he did not at first recognize who it was. And he had to lower his eyes lest anyone observe that they were filled with tears. It was himself. As though the musicians were not nearly so much playing the little phrase as performing the rites on which it insisted before it would consent to appear, Swan felt its presence like that of a protective goddess who had disguised herself in the sweeping cloak of sound. He felt he was no longer in exile and alone since she, who addressed herself to him, was whispering to him of Odette. For he had no longer, as of old, the impression that Odette and he were unknown to the little phrase, had it not often been the witness of their joys. So, Swan was not mistaken in believing that the phrase of the sonata really did exist. Human as it was from this point of view, it yet belonged to an order of supernatural beings whom we have never seen, but whom, in spite of that, we recognize and acclaim with rapture when some explorer of the unseen contrives to coax one forth, to bring it down from that divine world to which he has access to shine for a brief moment in the firmament of ours.
I'm going to read to you for two minutes, and then we will sing to you for six minutes. <laughs> forewarned is forewarned. <clears throat> we are all Proustian in that we all have a past which alters as we advance. We would like to freeze that past into the present, yet the present, being in constant flux, is ephemeral and, like the future, does not by definition exist. Is a work of art the sole example of the past recaptured? But that fixed work of art also changes meaning according to the perspective of each vanishing month. Yes, even Proust's novel shifts in focus with every generation. Still, we are all Proustian in that more than with any other writer, there is something in him for everyone. Am I chronologically closer to Proust than anyone here? Well, sociologically, perhaps, since all through the 1950s, I lived in the mansion of my dearest friend, Marie-Laure de Noailles, whose grandmother, Laure de Chevigny, was the chief model for the Duchesse de Guermont. Marie-Laure's widowed mother later wed Francis de Croisset, who was Ronaldo Hahn's librettist for at least one delicious operetta, Ciboulette. And Hahn, who was first Proust's lover, then his closest lifelong friend, was arguably a model for the composer Vinteuil. Mary Laure, just 18 when the reclusive master died, recalled only that he avoided hearing Pelias and Melisande, lest the image of that medieval forest bring on an asthma attack. <laughs> Indeed, though I am in awe of Proust's vast compass of insight, it is only in his dealings with my particular specialty, music, that I find him wanting. Ronaldo Hahn, a first-rate second-rater, composed these two songs as a teenager. They are in the bland tradition of salon music on texts of Victor Hugo and Paul Verlaine. My own song, Early in the Morning, on a poem of Robert Hillier, about being young in love and in Paris, was composed when I was young in love and in Paris. Scott Murphy and I will perform the three songs without pause.
two ways in which great literature impacts upon society. The one is cultural, in narrow definition of culture as practice of the arts. The writer breaks the traditional seals of the word, takes off into exploration of new modes of expression, challenges and changes what fiction is. After Proust, after Joyce, yes, the novel could never be the same. How Marcel Proust changed the concept of the novel as a form, I know has been and will be expounded in this company of eminent Proustian scholars, and so I shan't have the presumption to enter the debate, which I find so far has been a very fascinating one. The other impact of great literature is its power of changing the consciousness of the reader. Even if that lay reader were to have no awareness of how it's been done, the literary techniques and devices the writer's taken up, activated, reinvented or invented. As a fiction writer, I have of course been alertly privy to, and no doubt I've learned from the literary innovations of Marcel Proust. But a writer finds her or his own voice, or isn't a writer. What has remained with me for a lifetime is the influence of Proust's emotional and aesthetic perceptions. So what I want to talk about is this other impact. The Proust who influences the persona. The Proust after reading whom the reader can never be the same. This is a grave matter, wonderful, perhaps dangerous. For there are those among us in, who, in whom whose epiphany comes not from the face of religion, philosophy, or politics, but the illumination of the subterranean passages of life by the imaginative writer. I was at quite an advanced age, I think in my late teens, for one who'd lived in books since early childhood, when long after Tolstoy, Dostoevsky, Balzac, Flaubert, I came upon that mistitled Remembrance of Things Past in the, in the Scott Moncrief translation. I'd survived a lonely, mother-love-dominated childhood, and so my first response was one of recognition. Here was a writer who understood that childhood better than I did myself. It was an identification. But later, as I read and returned to that book, its effect was something different prophetic to the series of present existential stages I was coming to, passing through. Holed up in an armchair in the tin-roofed house of a mining town in the South African felt, far, far away from the Mezeglise Way, Swans Way, Combray, Balbec, and the Boulevard Ausman, I discovered that the intense response that I had to natural beauty, to flowers, trees, and the sea visited once a year, wasn't something high-mindedly removed from the drives of existence I was struggling with, but was part of a sensuality which informs and belongs with awakening sexuality, the conflation of emotional and the aesthetic formation. Every time, any time one turns back to the novel, one finds the delight 
of something relevant to past perception that one had missed before. Uh, for example, in my recent rereading of A la Recherche du Temps Perdu, my third in French, I've seen how pollen, pollen recurs, the natural product become a metaphor. The wind distributed fecundity, part of the very air that we breathe. First coming from the regard of the girl, you'll remember that the narrator follows with his eyes on the drive with Madame de Villeparacy in L'Ombre des, de, des Jeunes Filles en Fleurs. And then there's that bumblebee that enters the courtyard with pollen that signifies the attraction cast in the air between the noble Baron de Charlus and the lowly waistcoat maker, Jupien. Proust himself pollinates ineffable connections between needs and emotions aroused by various means in us. In the context of projected existence, I came to Proust from D.H. Lawrence and Blake. Sexuality was fulfillment guaranteed to the bold, to anyone who would flout into dictions and free desire. Abstinence sows sand all over the ruddy limbs and flaming hair, but desire gratified plants fruits of life and beauty there. And this Blakean gratification between men and women was the image to me of Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers dancing on simulated clouds. Like Italo Calvino, I formed my notion of future emotional life as innocently and lyingly portrayed by the movies of the time. The processes of loving as exemplified in the desperate pilgrimage of Swan. And what a way that is. Ecstatic, frustrating, impossible to turn away from. Viewing the pursued beloved from the terrible angles of suspicion, losing the will to continue. Grabbed by the will to go on. Always moving along with him. One has moments when one wants to shake him and say, stop. And one sees he cannot, he will not. Maybe that's the principle of love. And in the end, of course, that devastating conclusion, this woman for whom he spoiled years of his life was really not his type at all. <laughs> Proust reformed, informed my youthful understanding of the expectations of sexual love, showed me its immense complexity, its ultimate dependency on the impossibility of knowing the loved one, the very defeat of possession, and this concomitant process of self-knowledge, often dismaying. The cloud mating of Fred and Ginger dispersed forever. In the life of the emotions I was embarked upon, my expectations were tutored by the greatest exploration ever made of the divine mystery of the sexual life in its ambient world of sensuality. Well, there's no time to discuss the continuation of the theme with Albertine. Only I'd like to observe that not only does it not matter a damn if an Albertine was really an Albert transformed by the alchemy of imagination rather than a sex change operation, himself a homosexual, no one has written better than Marcel Proust of heterosexual relations. 
Well, perhaps literary genius can be defined yet once again as creativity that is all things, knows everything in every human. After early readings of the book, I read, of course, Les Plaisirs et les Jours, Jean Santeuil, and uh, Saint-Beuve, Contre Saint-Beuve. But to these I haven't returned. But like all of us, I have more or less the gamut of Proust scholarship in English and French. But all have been surpassed for me by the publication this year of Roger Shattuck's Proust's Way, an amazing feat of originality where one would have thought that all the gold-bearing ore had long been brought to the surface. My present reading of the book has become a new one because of Roger Shattuck's book, filled with new understanding, possibilities, and new joys through the variety of lenses provided by Shattuck's radiant vision. Marcel Proust is a writer with whom one moves along for life, reading and rereading without ever exhausting the sources he reveals only when one is ready for them. At the grand and poignant final social gathering of all social gatherings, narrator Marcel finds past friends and acquaintances unrecognizably changed by age, while still having the sense of himself as he'd been in his mother's eyes. And you'll remember that he replies to a young woman's invitation to dine, with pleasure, if you don't mind dining alone with a young man. And only when he hears people giggle, he adds hastily, or rather an old man. Later he realizes that the span of time represented by the aspect of that gathering not only had been lived through, but was his life presented to him. As I grow old, I find myself ready for the revelation, time regained, of this Proustian source, when among old friends with whom I was always the youngest of the circle, I realize we are now, all alike, disguised in the garb of aging. And I, like everyone else, have to be introduced to myself. Proust makes it another epiphany. author, an athlete of perception, master portrayer of consciousness, inexhaustible, concerns himself with sleep and uses the intermediate states between sleeping and waking as a vehicle of narrative, reveries, half-conscious memory. The result is exquisitely precise. Beckett in Malloy has a haunting couple of sentences, a haunting sentence. Just a bit of business really thrown away, absurd and funny. Malloy says, sleep while it arouses the lust to capture. <laughs> 
seems to appease the lust to kill. And in the following scene, the obsessed Marcel reverses things and, and views, as the author might view, the sleeping Albertine, bicyclist and equestrian and beloved. The scene is haunting, in, particularly in, in view of what we know will occur to Albertine some months after it takes place, when she will close her eyes and not open them. And I think it particularly demonstrates Proust's wonderful ability to be passionate, deliberate, erotic, witty, sinister, all at once. And the following is from The Captive. Sometimes my mistress was so tired after her long outing in the morning and afternoon in the open air that when I returned, I found her asleep and did not wake her. I would gaze at Albertine stretched out below me. From time to time, a slight unaccountable tremor ran through her as the leaves of a, of a tree are shaken for a few moments by a sudden breath of wind. She would touch her hair and then, not having arranged it to her liking, would raise her hand to it again with motions so consecutive, so deliberate, that I was convinced she was about to wake. Not at all. She grew calm again in the sleep from which she had not emerged. She laid her hand on her breast with a droop of the arm so artlessly childlike that I was obliged, as I gazed at her, to suppress the smile that is provoked in us by the solemnity, the innocence, and the grace of little children. I, who was acquainted with many Albertines in one person, seemed now to see many more reposing by my side. Her eyebrows arched as I had never noticed them encircled the globes of her eyelids like a halcyon's downy nest. Races, atavisms, vices reposed upon her face. Whenever she moved her head, she created a different woman, often one whose existence I had never suspected. I seemed to possess not one, but countless girls. Her breathing, as it gradually became deeper, made her breast rise and fall in a regular rhythm, and above it her folded hands and her pearls displaced in a different way by the same movement, like boats and anchor chains set swaying by the movement of the tide. Then. Feeling that the tide of her sleep was full, that I should not run aground on reefs of consciousness covered now by the high water of profound slumber, I would climb deliberately and noiselessly onto the bed, lie down by her side, clasp her waist in one arm, and place my lips upon her cheek and my free hand on her heart, and then on every part of her body in turn so that it too was raised like the pearls by the breathing of the sleeping girl, I myself was gently rocked by its regular motion. I had embarked upon the tide of Albertine's sleep. 
Sometimes it afforded me a pleasure that was less pure. For this, I had no need to make any movement, but allowed my leg to dangle against hers like an oar which one trails in the water, imparting to it now and again a gentle oscillation like the intermittent wing beat of a bird asleep in the air. I chose, in gazing at her, the aspect of her face which one never saw and which was so beautiful. The sound of her breathing, which had grown louder, might have given the illusion of the panting of sexual pleasure, and was when mine was at its climax, I could kiss her without having interrupted her sleep. I felt at such moments that I had possessed her more completely, like an unconscious and unresisting object of dumb nature. I was not troubled by the words that she murmured from time to time in her sleep. Their meaning was closed to me. And besides, whoever the unknown person to whom they referred, it was upon my hand, upon my cheek, that her hand, stirred by an occasional faint tremor, stiffened for an instant. I savored her sleep with a disinterested, soothing love just as I would remain for hours listening to the unfurling of the waves. But this pleasure of seeing her sleep, which was as sweet to me as that of feeling her live, was cut short by another pleasure, that of seeing her wake. It was carried to a more profound and more mysterious degree, the same pleasure as I felt in having her under my roof when, from the underworld of sleep, she climbed the last steps of the staircase of dreams. It was in my room that she was reborn to consciousness and life, that she wondered for an instant, where am I? In that first delicious moment of uncertainty, it seemed to me that once again I was taking possession of her more completely. Then she would find her tongue and say, my, or my darling, followed by my Christian name, which, if we give the narrator the same name as the author of this book, would be my Marcel or my darling Marcel. After this, I would never allow a member of my family, by calling me darling, to rob of their precious uniqueness the delicious words that Albertine uttered to me. As she uttered them, she pursed her lips in a little pout, which she spontaneously transformed into a kiss. As quickly as she had earlier fallen asleep, she had awoken.
The little phrase I'm about to read comes from a famous passage in Sodom and Gomorrah, when Marcel, the narrator, is suddenly reminded of his grandmother. He had stayed at the same beach resort in Balbec with her once, but now, more than a year after her death, he's back to the very same hotel. What he finds, as Proustian characters always find when they expect maximum emotion, is, however, minimum sensation. He encounters, more or less, what he experienced at the time of her death, a sense of surprise at feeling so singularly numb, almost indifferent, blasé. All of it is colored by Marcel's overloaded feeling of not feeling enough, and by the hope that this shamed admission of emotional inadequacy might itself pass for a form of genuine emotion. Now, surrounded by the indolent charm of the Grand Hotel, what the young adult Marcel thinks of when he arrives at Valbec is not his grandmother, but the social life awaiting him of the band of young girls he had met there once before, and of the vague, tantalizing thing which Marcel always, always looks forward to, something exotic, someone new, unexpected, different, who might ultimately lure him out of his humdrum, bookish cocoon into what Proust calls a new life. As for his grandmother, well, if bereavement is the toll the living must pay for the loss of a loved one, then clearly Marcel, to use Jane Austen's words, has been let off easily. But we are, of course, being set up. For as soon as Marcel is in his hotel room and bends down to undo one of his boot buttons, something his grandmother had helped him do in that very same room, he suddenly burst out sobbing vehemently. What hits him is not just that he misses her terribly, but that he will never, ever see her again. Because for the first time in his life, and in a manner so that totally devastates him, the arch-premeditor Marcel is finally, it finally sinks in, long after it happened, that his grandmother is in fact dead. Yet, come to think of it, this shouldn't be surprising. Emotion, as every reader of Proust knows, after about 30 pages, always comes unannounced, obliquely, inadvertently, just as it does, say, in Freud. The more unexpected or rehearsed, the more poignant it is. This is how life works in Proust. Conversely, one may bump into the right people, but never when one wants to. One may get what one wants, but only after giving it up or wanting something else instead. We reach out to seize precious moments, not as they're happening to us, but once it's clear that we've lost them. So far, so good. The setup is familiar enough. Proust, this cross between Freud, Woody Allen, and Murphy of Murphy's Law, is, <laughs> is one of us. How well he, we know him and how well he knows us. How well he understands repression and how simple and direct that outburst of earnest grief and how admirable his knowledge that it is always better to feel something, anything, than to feel nothing at all. That human beings should and want to feel things. That we are each of us heat-seeking subjects starved for feeling, which is why, even at the risk of getting hurt or making tremendous fools of ourselves, we will not shirk from being drawn to certain places, to certain objects, certain odors, to art, to tears, to plants, to writing, to memory, to music, to vice and of course, to other human beings. Because by so doing, 
Each of us finds a secret private conduit to an inner life that is not just our new life or our true life, but our whole life. How magnificently and predictably modern Proust is. So for the sake of argument, because I am perverse, let me overturn everything I've been saying and ask, what if this true inner life is nothing more than a life made to be lost, but lost before it was ever possessed or even glimpsed through, th though it seems to have been lived because it claims to be remembered? What if this true inner life hovers on the horizon like a ghost ship that never materializes but never vanishes either? What if this other life were an ancillary life called paper, an unlived life made on paper, lived for paper, by a man raised and fed on paper, who has learned that life itself can be so drearily unimaginative sometimes that by a sort of miracle that justifies his lifelong commitment and confinement to paper, life will mimic what could only have happened on paper. Where else but on paper does a man desperately seeking a woman among millions in Paris actually bump into her on the streets at night? Proust's bookish eye is transfixed by those moments in life that are stunning not because of their inherent beauty, but because they cry out to be committed, that is, returned to paper, to literature, to fiction, the ultimate seat of the inner life. Small wonder that Proust put so much stock on style. The Proustian sentence, which personifies procrastination, allows him to sink into paper and never to come up for air, to pile up metaphors and clauses and take all sorts of sinuous turns, the better to take sorrow and pain and spread them out like gold into a cadence, just cadence, because cadence is like feeling and cadence is like breathing and cadence is desire. And if cadence doesn't reinvent everything we would like our life to be or to become or to have been, then just the act of searching and probing in that particularly cadence way becomes a way of feeling and of being in the world. And yet, having built such a paper world, Proust can suddenly overturn everything I've been suggesting and jolts out like someone waking from a dream, sputtering things as randomly and inchoately as a man who's barely learned how to speak. No reader of Montaigne can forget that stunning moment when after probing why he loved his deceased friend, Etienne de la Boétie, so much, the author of the essays, this master stylist of Baroque prose, breaks down and scrawls out one of the most beautiful sentences penned in French. You ask me why I loved him, Montaigne says. I don't know. All I can say is, parce que c'était lui, parce que c'était moi. Because it was he, because it was I. Proust, too, knows how to cut through layer after layer of searching and probing prose and write as brief a sentence, if only because it, too, like his sudden outburst, wells up in him and erupts on something that is more than just paper now. You ask me why I love my grandmother, he says. I don't know. All I know is this. And here's the little sentence I promised you earlier. Elle était ma grand-mère et j'étais son petit-fils. She was my grandmother, and I was her grandson. And if that's not enough, a few lines down, Proust will say it again, more forcefully, because while staring at her photograph in his hotel room, he will say it even with more guileless, in more guileless terms, 
C'est ma grand-mère. Je suis son petit-fils. It's my grandma. I'm her grandson. It's my grandma. I'm her grandson. Anyone can write this. But of course, it's what's around it that makes it so eloquent. More to the point, life can't compete with this. Life doesn't even come close. And come to think of it, perhaps no one alive can today. Thank you. I wrote this, uh, the, these two pages when I was trying to uh, ask myself why, why we are here now, why Proust uh, is so popular in America and especially now. No matter how strange Proust's life might have been, it has been subsumed, as he hoped, into the radiant vision of it that he presented in his writing. Nevertheless, the intensely intimate, if not always personal, quality of Proust's novel makes him more and more popular in this age of memoirs, whereas other modernists, Stein, Joyce, Pound, rejected confession in favor of formal experiment. Proust was a literary cyclops. If that means he was a creature with a single great eye at the center of his consciousness, no matter that the first-person narrator is only occasionally the literal Marcel Proust. Every page of Proust is the transcript of a mind thinking, not the pell-mell stream of consciousness of a Molly Bloom or a Stephen Dedalus, each a dramatic character with a unique vocabulary and an individuating range of preoccupations, but rather the fully orchestrated, ceaseless, and disciplined ruminations of one mind, one voice, the sovereign intellect. Proust may be more available to readers today than in the past because as his life recedes in time and the history of his period goes out of focus, he is read more as a fabulist than a chronicler, as a maker of myths rather than the valedictorian of the Belle Epoque. Under this new dispensation, Proust emerges as the supreme symphonist of the spirit. We no longer measure his accounts against a reality we know Instead, we read his fables of caste and lust, of family virtue and social vice, of the depredations of jealousy and the consolations of art, not as reports, but as fairy tales. He is our Scheherazade. Of course, Proust is also popular because he writes about glamour, rich people, nobles, artists, and he wrote about love. It doesn't seem to matter that he came to despise love, that he exploded it, reduced it to its shabbiest, most mechanical, even hydraulic terms, by which I mean he not only demystified love, he also dehumanized it, turning it into something merely Pavlovian. The love Swan feels for Odette is in no way a tribute to her charms or her soul. In fact, Swan knows perfectly well that her charms are fading and that her soul is banal. Modern readers are responsive to Proust's tireless and brilliant analyses of love because we, too, no longer take love for granted. Readers today are always making the personal public, the intimate political, the instinctual philosophical. Proust may have attacked love, but he did know a lot about it. Like us, he took nothing for granted. He was not on smug, cozy terms with his own experience. We read Proust because he knows so much about the links between childhood anguish 
and adult passion. We read Proust because despite his intelligence, he holds reasoned evaluations in contempt and understands that only the gnarled knowledge that suffering brings us is of any real use. We read Proust because he knows that in the terminal stage of passion, we no longer love the beloved. The object of our love has been overshadowed by love itself. Proust writes, and this malady, which Swan's love had become, had so proliferated, was so closely interwoven with all his habits, with all his actions, with his thoughts, his health, his sleep, his life, even with what he hoped for after his death, was so utterly inseparable from him that it would have been impossible to eradicate it with almost entire, without almost entirely destroying him. As surgeons say, his love was no longer operable. Proust may be telling us that love is a chimera, a projection of rich fantasies onto an indifferent, certainly mysterious surface. But nevertheless, those fantasies are undeniably beautiful, intimations of paradise, the artificial paradise of art. I doubt whether many readers could ever be content with Proust's rejection of rustling, wounded life in favor of frozen, immobile art. But his powerful vision of impermanence certainly does speak to us. The rise and fall of individual loves on the small scale and of entire social classes on the grand, the constant revolution of sentiments and status is a subject Proust rehearsed and we've realized. Proust is the first contemporary writer of the 20th century, for he was the first to describe the permanent instability of our times. The death of Burgotte. The circumstances of his death were as follows. A fairly mild attack of uremia had led to his being ordered to rest. But an art critic, having written somewhere that in Vermeer's view of Delft, a picture which he adored and imagined that he knew by heart, a little patch of yellow wall was so well painted that it was as if one looked at it by itself, like some priceless specimen of Chinese art, of a beauty that was sufficient in itself. Bogota ate a few potatoes, left the house, and went to the exhibition. At the first few steps he had to climb, he was overcome by an attack of dizziness. He walked past several pictures and was struck by the aridity and pointlessness of such an artificial kind of art which was greatly inferior to the sunshine of a windswept Venetian palazzo or of an ordinary house by the sea. At last he came to the Vermeer, which he remembered as more striking, more different from anything else he knew, but in which, thanks to the critic's article, he noticed for the first time some small figures in blue and the sand, that the sand was pink and finally, the precious substance of the tiny patch of yellow wall. His dizziness increased. He fixed his gaze like a child upon a yellow butterfly that it wants to catch on the precious little patch of wall. 
That's how I ought to have written, he said. My last books are too dry. I ought to have gone over them with a few layers of color, made my language precious in itself like this little patch of yellow wool. Meanwhile, he was not unconscious of the gravity of his condition. In a celestial pair of scales, there appeared to him weighing down one of the pans, his own life, while the other contained the little patch of wall so beautifully painted in yellow. He felt that he had rashly sacrificed the former for the latter. All the same, he said to himself, I shouldn't like to be the headline news of this exhibition for the evening papers. He repeated to himself, little patch of yellow wall with sloping roof, little patch of yellow wall. Meanwhile, he sank down onto a circular settee, whereupon he suddenly ceased to think that his life was in jeopardy and reverting to his natural optimism, said to himself, it's nothing, merely a touch of indigestion from those potatoes which were undercooked. A fresh attack struck him down. He rolled from the settee to the floor as visitors and attendants came hurrying to his assistance. He was dead. Dead forever? Who can say? All that we can say is that everything is arranged in this life as though we entered it carrying a burden of obligations contracted in a former life as though we entered it carrying, oh, sorry, in a former life. There is no reason inherent in the conditions of life on this earth that can make us consider ourselves obliged to do good, to be kind and thoughtful, even to be polite, nor for an atheist artist to consider himself obliged to begin over again a score of times a piece of work, the admiration aroused by which will matter little to his worm-eaten body, like the patch of yellow painted wall with so much skill and refinement by an artist destined to be forever unknown and barely identified under the name Vermeer. All these obligations, which have no sanction in our present life, seems to belong to a different world, a world based on kindness,